0: Hello, and welcome to co cast where game designers Peter Gusis and Michael Kelly talk about cooperative board games. Join us each week as we break down one game and have a related design discussion. Hi, I'm Peter, and I'm here with Mike. Hey, everyone. Welcome to another episode of co cast It's a very special episode. In this episode, we're talking to Matt Leacock.
1: Yay! <laughs> <laughs> How are you doing, Matt? Thanks so much for being on the show. Hey, doing great. Thanks for having me.
0: Yeah, so we're recording live from Unpub, so if the sound quality is a little different from what you're used to, that's why. It might be echoey a little in the room here. We're
1: actually all here together. How
0: unusual is that? Usually we're record, uh, recording over the internet. All right, so without further ado, Matt, we're here to talk today about co-op games, something you might know a little bit about. Tiny bits. Yeah, so if you if you don't know Matt Leacock, he's designed
1: a few games you might have played. I, I, what are
2: a few, Matt? I'm um, not even... Uh, Probably best known for Pandemic, but I've also designed the Forbidden series and Thunderbirds.
1: Yeah, so, you know, small, small indie hits there, right? (laughs) um... Oh,
2: Thunderbirds is a little more indie. Yeah,
1: that's true. I'll give you that. But yeah, (laughs) some of the, I think, most successful and some of our favorite uh, co-ops of all time. So again, fabulous to have you on the show. Thanks for making time for us at Unpub this year.
0: Yeah, so we've already talked in one of our episodes specifically about Forbidden Island. And Forbidden Island has... For I think both of us, this made our number one spot, one of our favorite mechanics of all time. In Pandemic, when you're flipping over a card, you're adding cubes to the board. But in Forbidden Island, you're actually removing tiles and cards from the deck, which really ramps up the tension as the game goes on. I don't think any game has actually matched that ramp up of tension. How did you come up with that mechanism originally?
2: Well, I mean, it does riff on Pandemic's engine and that as you're reshuffling, you know, things that are bad get worse. But uh, yeah, I, I just got kind of a visceral thrill playing with the game, seeing the, the island shrink. I mean, I, I think I was influenced a little bit with, by the game Survive that I played as a kid. Okay. That's like maybe 30 years old now. I mean, it's... Yeah, I mean, it's still yeah although, yeah,
1: uh, that, that reprint uh, that came out a few years back uh, revitalized that
2: one. Yeah, no, Survive's a great game. That's yeah, right. yeah. I mean, I, I just remember that island shrinking, and I captured some of that there. But uh, the fact that that, you know, you really have to kind of try to stay dry and stay in the high land. just just felt exciting to me when I was playing with it.
0: Yeah, absolutely. No, that's one of our favorite things about the game, again, is the increasing tension. So obviously that's important in all co-op games. And, I mean, is that something you strive for at the beginning, is starting out at a certain level of tension and changing the level of tension as the game goes on? Do you want to see an arc?
2: Yeah, yeah. I mean, really, um, you want sort of waves of of fear and then hope. Uh, You can't just have it, well, I mean, you can make it relentless. The players kind of get exhausted. So what I found with that card engine is that, you know, things get really, really bad, you get a little chance to catch your breath, and then they get worse. But all along, the overall story uh, is getting grimmer and grimmer at an accelerating rate. Right, um, and I think Forbidden Island also has this this thing that Pandemic doesn't, which is you do all your melds, you get all your treasures, but then you've got that moment of you know get to the chopper, you know, it's, it's right. sort of like a <laughs> uh, the second kind of uh, climax where you're not sure you're going to make it off the island or not, and it's got this nice finish that I, I think um, is even more refined than, than Pandemic. Yeah, my my uh, <laughs>
1: just uh, a chopper. little a, a little personal share besides the, the predator quote there. Uh, <laughs> my son my 5 year old that i play forbidden island with a lot whenever we win he makes me i have to put the helicopter card down on the table and place all our pawns onto it and then like carefully lift it up and if we fall off we don't win the game <laughs> so, <laughs>
0: it's just, like the whole, like reflex
2: aspect that's added on
0: at the end it's a dexterity challenge at the end of uh, forbidden island oh, well, but
2: yeah that's 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 the thing I... bundle a helicopter in the game so there you there go, go. Oh, there you go hey well
1: you, i guess you can use the uh, the flying ship from forbidden desert right. maybe the thing that you said that kind of jumps out at me the most, and it's not a problem with your game, but uh, it is something that I see in a lot of co-ops, and I think even in uh, one of the ones we dev- we designed, Salvation Road, the idea of exhaustion, I think, is a really something to think about and kind of a danger of co-op design. There, there are many co-ops I've played where I feel actively like depressed almost by the experience and kind of crushed by the game. And yes, I guess in, like sort of you know, from a video game perspective, in a Dark Souls way, or uh, Ghost Stories, like one of those kind of games where you expect it to be hard, and that's sort of the draw that can be good. But yeah, it also can be a really negative thing when you just see, as you, as you said, you need to have some hope, and when you see no hope in a game whatsoever.
2: Yeah, there's, there's, there's like three things there, I think. I mean, one is uh, you, you need to have hope, you need to be able to catch your breath, mm-hmm. and it can't, I don't think it should be a grind, like yeah. um uh, just a uh, dimension ghost stories for example i think technically it, it it is impossible to win during the first maybe it it's been years since i played it but during the first three quarters of the game you're just trying to get through those No cards. you're right like so you get to the point where you could potentially win where um i think it i think it's more satisfying if you can play and, you know, maybe you get really lucky and maybe you can unlock an early win. At least there's some hope for it. It's like a more open design space rather than, we're going to make you, like, grind through this deck before you can ever have any chance of unlocking it. Sure. And do you think
0: something that might help with that is things like campaign games or these dungeon crawl type games where you're getting equipment, your characters are getting better as you're going along, and even Pandemic Legacy, from game one to game two, mm -hmm. you're getting better. Do you think something like that can help with the grind or do you think that's just another way of masking?
2: Uh, I'm trying to think what I guess when I talk about the grind it's sort of like well we've got this certain amount of work that we need to do and it's got uh, this goal post and until you or this this line and until you cross the line you really can't start on your final goal Something like that. I, I was just sensitive to that when playing Gloucesteries in particular, because I knew that there was just no chance of getting a win until we crossed that until, one threshold. Right, until you get to the last ten cards. Yeah, the equipment and stuff I think is uh, interesting because it's sort of like this toolkit that you can use to creatively solve problems, both in uh, the Legacy games and in uh, Forbidden Island. It's really like MacGyver style, how can we cobble together some sort of crazy plan in order to secure a win? I would say there's potentially a a minor grind in, like, Base
1: Pandemic and Forbidden Island in that you do have to progress through the the player deck to get the cards Mm -hmm. you need to meld.
2: Yeah, Yeah, that's true.
1: And I thought it was a very interesting design decision in Forbidden Desert where the players have a much more active control over when they get those pieces. Now, yes, you have potentially the luck of the draw of where Mm -hmm. the... uh, that's Not playing Forbidden Desert, you're you're trying to find the intersection of the different parts of the flying craft so you can escape the desert. So, uh, could you discuss kind of the choice there? Sort of, yeah. you know, minor grind versus kind of no grind at all. And you can you can let just the desert run away with the board and potentially kind of rush to the. Uh, the pieces of the airship if you want to yeah
2: well in pandemic i'm trying to create enough local emergencies that you're like okay well we have to trade off between firefighting and doing the strategic objective mm-hmm. and we want to make sure that there's enough crisis on the board that you you're you always kind of feel like you have to keep an eye on that and if you don't have the cards you need well you know what you need to do. You need to go kind of make put sure out that you put out fires. Yeah. And then, you know, then there's that sort of, like, inflection point where you might want to lunge for the victory, mm. knowing that you're risking local crises around the board and hoping that you get enough uh, runway in the outbreak track in order to, to accomplish that. So I'm, I'm hoping to kind of hide that uh, where you're waiting for the cards to arrive because there's so many other things you can focus on.
1: Well, to be fair, you're ne- I guess you're never really 100% waiting, because you have the option of trading, it's just that that's using yeah. up so many actions, and it is the trade-off. I guess Forbidden Island is slightly more pronounced, just because you go through the player deck so many times, whereas Pandemic, mm. you know, you're getting like a nice mix of those cards over time. I love Forbidden Island for that. Yeah. Um, but yeah, like uh, sometimes I'll be like, ah, oh, this is going to be a hard game. We didn't get two artifacts before we went through right, the player deck the, the first, first time. time. Like, yeah, right. yeah, you can sort of see how the uh, the feel of the game is going to be based on the the
0: matchups you get as you go through that first time. Mm-hmm. Well, yeah, and there's some agency as well in the players, like, when they decide to solve those things. Because as you're getting to the end of the player deck, you may make decisions you wouldn't have made in Pandemic, for example. You never get that shifting point where, you know, the deck reshuffles. So you never even have that decision, should I hold on? With Pandemic, a lot of times it's, can I get to a research station to be mm-hmm. able to, to cure a disease, but in Forbidden Island, you have more of that decision. Yeah, a
2: little fuzzier. I mean, some advanced players will look to see, okay, well, when do we expect that next ep- epidemic to show up? You know, can we can we uh, do some high risk activity right. before we know that we're going to get you know caught by that?
0: That's true. Although, as you get more advanced and put more epidemics in the deck, they they come every other turn. <laughs> yeah. It feels like so. <laughs> <laughs> oh, yeah, the highest difficulty settings. So I was talking a little bit about leveling up, and it feels like in Pandemic you're doing that, though, because speaking of those research stations, at the beginning of the game, you have one research station on the board. And as the game goes on, you're actually adding research stations to different places on the board, which helps you move better. It helps you cure diseases better because, obviously, you'll be closer. You spend less actions moving back and forth to get to those research stations. Was that something that came into design pretty early, or did that take you a little while to, yeah, it's to about, get to uh,
2: it? About halfway through just experimenting with what other types of actions could be um added and i latched onto that and kept it uh, right away because it it's sort of like these milestones that you can achieve halfway mm-hmm. through the the game where you, you get a sense of progression and you get, you know you're visibly constructing something and it makes you feel like the story is continuing and building on itself in the same way the diseases have that effect as well you can see the threat building up over time in sort of in a negative way and it's very visceral you can you know, and the sand in and, and, uh, Forbidden Desert and, and the lack of tiles in Forbidden Island, you can glance at the game and see, oh, wow, things are bad, right? Cause you yeah, can you can kind of see the game state. Yeah. And yeah.
1: Right. You know, I think that's a hallmark of good co op design in general. And again, kind of contrasting with the grind, no offense to ghost stories, we, we had very positive things to say <laughs> about that in our recent review. But that game could be potentially a little samey as you progress through, like you're doing the same kind of actions. Whereas something like Pandemic, it's almost like the game, a lot of good co-ops progress through phases, I guess. So Pandemic, you've got the early game where it's very hard to move, and at the same time, things aren't too dire. You aren't adding too many uh, cubes at the end of each turn. And then by the end, I guess you've progressed to where you, your capabilities are much greater. You can move around the board more quickly, or uh, remove cubes more quickly because of the cures. But the deck is also kind of racing you, and uh, the cards are coming out a lot faster. I compare it to, have you played Spirit Island yet? I haven't tried that yet. No. It's a Spirit Island, I would say, has a very similar thing. It's this uh, kind of desperate fight to even hold on, because you know, you're know you these spirits defending an island against colonial invaders. At the very beginning, they're like all over the island, but Late game, you go to this very different field where you have all these powers that you can bring to bear, but they're also kind of increasing their pace. So I, I think a lot of good co-ops kind of have that feel of progressing through stages or phases or whatever you want to call it.
2: Yeah, it's almost like Axe. You know? Yeah,
1: yeah, that's a good way of saying it. I don't know if you get this, asked this in every interview... But usually when we have guests on, we kind of ask about their their gaming history, how you got
0: into the hobby. Well, I was going to ask, actually, specifically about co-ops. Like, I know you're now known for making co-ops. Is that something you originally went in for? Is there hmm. something about co-op design that drew you into it? Or was it something that evolved, like, well, now I made Pandemic, everybody expects me to make a co-op.
2: <laughs> I played Reiner Knitia's uh, Lord of the Rings back in 2000, yeah. and uh, I played it with my wife, and we both really enjoyed it, and I really love the fact that it didn't matter if we won or lost, we had a good time, and, you know, it's just a very positive experience being able to win or lose with her in, in that game, and it's, it seemed like an interesting challenge to come up with a, a cardboard artificial intelligence kind of enemy, uh, so I, you know, I went for it and designed this one, and it kind of took off, so... Uh, and it was a fun challenge, so I just followed it up with, uh, with others. I mean, I'm fortunate I've been able to do more.
1: Yeah, <laughs> no, absolutely. Yeah, and Lord of the Rings, that was, I think that was my first kind of introduction to the co-op genre,
0: too. I've still not played that one. You haven't played? Wow. I've have never played. Don't, don't take away my co-op, Craig. <laughs> <laughs> I did play Pandemic, though, right when it first came out, because I was actually demoing for Z-Man games at the time when it first came out, and I kept going to my local game store, and they kept yelling at me. Because I couldn't get them Pandemic, right? Like, it's like, I'm just demoing the game, people. I don't even work for the company, right? I don't have a copy yet, you know? It's one of those situations. Like, every time we get this game in, it sells right out again. Yeah, how many times have you taught Pandemic, if you had to guess? Hundreds and hundreds. <laughs> because it was very popular. It was funny, because Z-Man was kind of in their heyday at that time. Because Agricola had just come out, yeah. right? Pandemic came out. They had another one, too, that took off. Trying to remember what it was, but it was like there were three big games that kind of came out from Z Man all around the same time, and it felt like those were the three games people were asking about. And it must be hard, even as a publisher, because you keep coming up with new games and like nobody wants to hear about them. They want to ask about your other three games.
2: That's a nice problem to have, really. Well, sure. I mean, of course. <laughs> That's true. And Sam at the time was doing like 40 games a year, or something. he was crazy because he, he was a one man shop. So, yeah. Yeah.
0: yeah. He was. And, uh, I mean, I feel like that's the way the game market is now for everyone, though. It's like there are how many 4,000 games released in a year? And how many do you really hear about? 10? 15? I mean, if you're a casual gamer that's just looking on BGG every once in a while to see, like, what the new hotness is, I mean, how many of these games survive every year?
1: I mean, it's, it's, again, though, I think it's a great problem to have. You know, comparing the hobby, when I first got into... uh, kind of the the more hobby gaming market, I mean, what was there? You know, there was Settlers, there was Carcassonne on kind of the Euro side. You had Steve Jackson games and Great War games, Avalon Hill, that kind of stuff. And now the fact that, you yeah, know, you can find any kind of theme you might like. You can find any mechanic you yeah. might like. You can find probably 20 games with that theme or mechanic. I, I think it's, it's amazing how the uh, hobby has grown. Now we're having some growing pains in that, it's hard for anything to get traction, I guess, mm-hmm. um, unless you know you have a, a, a great system like Pandemic to kind of build on. But yeah, it's 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 a good problem. I'm, I'm glad the hobby is growing and kind yeah. of getting more mainstream media focus. Used to be able
2: to just play everything that came out. Of it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> like everyone say, okay, well, what a Mayfair import and yeah, you know, it's it's a, a
1: lot like. Not that I, I guess any of us were alive for this, but, you know, back in the, the 50s and 60s, like the birth of television, mm. like everyone watched the same three TV shows. And you could go into any restaurant and be like, hey, so uh, you, I, I do like this. But now, uh, you know, now if you look at the best games from last year, probably if we all added up our our plays of games, we would have only... Play ten percent of them, you know, and maybe only a few of the biggest ones. It's 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 interesting, kind of the uh, the diffusion of the hobby overall. Well, I think
2: of it like book publishing, even. Yeah. yeah, it's not like you expect to be able to read every book that comes out every year, but there's a huge diversity, and people who really love one particular kind of thing can go find their thing. Yeah.
0: Well, I guess that's the benefit of us focusing on co-ops and you focusing on co-ops is, you know, you find something that you love and you can keep in that same niche, right? You can stay doing the same things. And I think as a designer, too, kind of getting back to the design discussion a little bit, I think as a designer, the more you do something, the better you get at it. Hmm. Like, have you found designing co-ops now to be easier than when you were first at it? Or do you still run into some challenges where you're looking for okay, how do I get past this design hurdle I'm...
2: Yeah, i Yeah, I found designing games in general to be easier because I do competitive games as well. I do find cooperative games, though, quite a bit easier. I don't know what it is exactly. I think, I think it's because the research methodology that I use is so much better suited or more natural to me with co-op games because I'm watching people record themselves and you get such a richer channel of information uh, when you've got people arguing and talking with each other because they're all talking and you kind of get a... View into what's going on in their heads, and if you're watching competitive players play each other, you just see like silence. You know, and they're staring the at the board, hidden. and it makes me nervous. It's just like, are That's they enjoying true. themselves? Um, and I, you know, I actually do have to kind of ask them sometimes. I see them leaning in, and they'll be like, "Oh, that was really fun," and like, "I'm glad you told me that." I have no idea, you know, whether you're enjoying yourselves or not. I have to pick up on those signals a little bit more, you know, because I have to build a whole new way of watching people play competitive games than, than cooperative games.
0: And I find, and I've listened to you talk in the past and other places about how you like to watch people record. And I know we, I've heard you talk about it too, how you don't like to guide people through their playtest experience. You like mm-hmm. to watch them as they experience it, dealing with the ups and downs, not helping them with those challenges. And that way you can see if it's a sticking point for one group or mm-hmm. or many group, or you know, if everybody's have it hitting the same sticking points. I, I'll be honest. I mean, that is something that's very hard for me as a co-op designer, to sit there and watch people not being able to figure out like what to do. And you're thinking
2: in your mind, oh, it's so obvious. It's that. Yeah. (laughs) You know what helps is the U.S. Postal Service. You put it in the mail, (laughs) You're not in the room. Yeah. I mean, you can give them your, your phone number and they can text you. They get totally stuck. But yeah, I mean, just not being in the room helps so much. And nowadays, everybody's got these cell phones in their pocket and they've got a video gear there and they forget about it. A lot of times they just completely act natural. And um, it's it's so much better than it was when I was doing user experience design research, Uh, you know, in Silicon Valley. You had these big cameras and labs and all this theater, which really took you away from a natural right. It wasn't a natural. It wasn't natural. Yeah, here they're playing in their living room, you know. Right. And they've got some phone propped up on on something that they you know they carry with them all the time. So it's it's much easier for you to feel like a fly on the wall.
1: That's
2: really fantastic. That's and, good, and,
1: yeah we we did a little bit of that with uh Salvation Road, some blind playtesting and I think we had it was it was only a couple we didn't have I'm sure you probably have uh, deeper and larger playtesting testing groups than we do but uh we had uh two or three groups record themselves and yeah it, it was painful sometimes like in the process we're like oh this game's great everyone's going to understand these rules yeah it totally <laughs> makes sense and they're <laughs> You know, two different groups play a major role 100% wrong. Yeah. You're like, yeah, yeah, so we didn't it's write a that a pill very well, for hubris. Yeah, yeah. yeah. It's exactly. great for <laughs> building up empathy and yeah, <laughs> yeah.
2: understanding. And boy, you really feel motivated to fix the problems when you watch people suffer at a distance. <laughs> right. <laughs> yeah. well, especially if it's something you created, right? Yeah. You have yeah. that personal yeah. attachment to it. Right. It's like, Oh okay. my gosh! I've
0: just failed these. People. Or if the balance
2: is wrong, and it's like crushingly hard oh, you see yeah. people just struggle because they feel like they're they're doing something wrong, or they're just not smart, or whatever. You know, you can really jump on them And it's funny
0: because we're here at
2: Unpub. It's funny you mentioned balance because I did take
0: a game which I knew the balance was off to one of these Unpub minis, and I went there and I said, "You know what? Every piece of feedback I'm going to get is on the game balance. This is too easy. This is too hard. I can't remember. I think it was too easy at the time." And it's like, you know, no sense of tension. And with a co-op game, it's really important to get that right. If you don't have that level of tension, and I mean, when you do get it right, it's amazing the difference in feel for players. Mm -hmm. They're like, wow, that was great, versus literally the same mechanisms. They're like, yeah, I don't know. Mm -hmm. You know, and I I think, and the hard part about co-ops is you can't make it the same every time, right? So you can't design this script that will run people through. And I guess games like Time Stories try to do this, right, where you got this one run through. But a lot of times we're building games for replayability. Mm-hmm. And part of the problem with that is there's randomness involved in that. Or you have to add some level of randomness because if there's none, then there is a prescribed way to get through it.
2: Yeah.
0: And so part of the hard part is, what if that first game they get is super easy? Or What if that first game they get is super hard? Now they feel crushed and don't ever want to play it again. Or, wow, I just walked through that. Well, I... No reason for me to play this game anymore, right? (laughs) I
1: beat it. That's it.
0: Yeah, and so it is an interesting balance, and it is something we have to do as designers. I mean, I wonder if there is a way to overcome that first game hurdle. What if you get this swingy game one way or another as Mm -hmm. your first game? Or do you as a designer think, well, I'm just going to try to
2: balance it tightly toward the middle? So I mean, You really can't do that. But, I mean, like Forbidden Sky, for example, the design, I'm finishing up right now, it's got a really wide audience. We have got people who love desert and are like hobby gamers and really into extremely hard experiences, challenging, gamey, you know, um, crunchy kind of stuff. And then you've got, you know, 10-year-old kids who are playing with each other. And it's a really wide group, so we're basically just trying to uh, include you know, four different difficulty levels and offer just the at least some tips, like, hey, if you've played these other games, you might want to start here if you've never, you know, played a right. game before, start here. And it, it doesn't economically, rule-wise, that doesn't take a whole lot of text to, to offer it, but it, it, it's pretty important to the, to the experience that you, you self-select appropriately in that first, first play. Yeah,
0: and we've actually started doing that ourselves. We started looking at... I mean, we always had different difficulty levels, but the first game we came out with, Salvation Road, it started you (laughs) on hard difficulty level, and it called it normal. And, it I mean, it ruined players' experience the first time because they said, well, I don't think this game is beatable. Mm -hmm. Not, I need to learn more to get to that next level of understanding. We set it up hard to begin with, and that was the decision we made with our publisher. And, like, okay, this is where we want the game to be. But now we're starting... Calling those easier levels easy, and if you choose to play on hard level yourself, you've made that choice going in. Yeah,
2: and I think players can tolerate that a little bit better. Sure, sure. If you select a difficulty level that says legendary, you don't yeah. necessarily. Yeah, if you start on the win, highest right? level yeah. of a Forbidden Island.
1: yeah. <laughs> you and, you and if you call this. it
2: novice, you're, I mean, that was a word that we shied away from in Pandemic because we we didn't we wanted people to start on intro. But if we called it not, this is Tom Lehman's doing. He, he basically got some research from people. Uh, if you called it novice, then no hobby player would start mm. at novice. Yeah, and we uh. actually did want people to start there because it's yeah, it's a pretty challenging game. Sure. Absolutely. Uh, so we called it intro. So that was sort of like the way you're supposed to play the first time. Uh, but with uh, the right games, uh, novice was a, a better fit because you're playing with with kids and it just yeah like yeah, yeah. oh that makes sense. So the terminology matters kind of
0: yeah, and that is true. And whatever level you decide to set set it at matters as well mm-hmm. because of that. And like what you call it. We had this discussion with Liz from Beyond Solitaire where she said, you know, if you call something like, I'm way too wimpy to come in here, nobody's going (laughs) to play at that level, right? So it's not really a true level because no one's going to start at the I'm way too wimpy to play this game level. So I do think it is important to have some kind of an intro mode and things like that. Mm -hmm. Now, what do you think about increasing complexity as players get better at your game? Introducing new elements, I guess similar to a Pandemic Legacy Mm -hmm. where game one you're starting very simply but then we're going to pile on the complexity and also maybe increase the challenge as you're going along as well. So as you get better at this game, we're going to pile it on. Do you think there yeah. can be systems like that, or do you think it's let the players move at their own pace?
2: Well, theres I mean, clearly you can design systems like that. I mean, complexity was never really a goal with uh, Pandemic Legacy. What we were really doing is increasing the number of options that were available so that mm. players could kind of choose their own path. And we unlock lots of options so that you can kind of respond to the challenges that we're giving to you. And then some uh, additional complexity is required because we need variability. Because you don't want to play the same game, you know, like 18 times. Uh, So, you know... But the, the key there was uh, providing a nice ramp. So you play it, and the first game is basically Pandemic. There's very, very little uh, that's different. And then we change it a little bit, and we change it a little bit. And uh, so it's it's not it's never quite overwhelming. You get into an overwhelming situation when you put it on the shelf and you come back to two months later, and you're like, oh my gosh, what were all these rules? I can't remember all of them. And I think, and then you get some hiccups there.
0: Yeah, I, it's funny you mention that because that was something I was just thinking in my head is. Whenever we put the game down for a while, it was hard. Like, it wasn't hard learning it all at once. And actually, Harry Potter Hogwarts Battle is the same thing. Mm -hmm. Like, as you're increasing the amount of stuff that gets put into the game, it's fine if you're playing back-to-back-to-back. And I think maybe that's part of the reason for Pandemic Legacy success. I think you had a lot of people that really binged it. I mean, Mm -hmm. binging TV is popular now, but, you know, if anybody put it down, they realized why you want to binge it right Mm because coming back to it is much harder thankfully you have the stickers in the rule book where you know that part of it makes it easier and we're doing a little bit more of that with pandemic legacy season two Mm -hmm. we're putting it on the shelf for a little bit and we come back and it's nice having the rule book expand as the game comes out because when you first get the game there's not a lot of complexity there in the rule book you're reading it and it's you know something that's easily digestible yeah and then as you go back to review it, you just kind of have to review the new parts, right? Oh, you, just, you know, just look
2: for the sticker wells and read those.
0: Exactly. So you know the basics. I don't know if that was a in- intentional
2: decision, but it seems to work out better where, you know, you can look where... Yeah, you not know, only that, but uh, with Season 2, we tried to externalize the rules even more so. So there's more stickers that actually go on the board. So um, there, there are certain things times in season one that we learned were a little difficult for people to remember and uh, so whenever we encountered a pattern like that in two, we put a reminder on the board so it was very salient you know, try to put it in the area where you would actually physically be moving your hand or whatever so that you could remember those rules.
1: Yeah, and I I found season two to be very smooth even with a two- or three-week hiatus, because not just the things on the board, but also on the reference cards, and then I can, like, see which of them need a little bit more explanation, so yeah, we've had pretty much no trouble jumping right in. Uh, I want to ask you, if, if you're willing to talk about it, I know the design's not finished yet, but I love Forbidden Island, love Forbidden Desert, uh, how much can you talk about Forbidden Sky, like, what, what are some challenges...
2: In general, you uh, Yeah, know. I, can, I can talk in general. Sure, I mean, sure. Um, actually, so, so. I, I had a couple of false starts with the game, actually. Yeah. I, I worked with two different co-designers in two different games, and I did one solitaire and developed them pretty far before ultimately killing it, yeah. each one of them, uh, one after another. Yeah, the, the tricky bit was making it different enough that, you know, it was something that you'd want uh, while still, you know, being in the series and feeling like it belonged. And so I, I really needed to find a, an audience for the game, you know, because I don't want the one to cannibalize the other. Like, yeah. right, oh, well, we got skies, we do desert. Yeah, sk- uh, Sky Fires, Forbidden Island or something, right? Yeah, exactly. Yeah. I'm really sensitive to that. Sure. So uh, part of the, the deal with that was, like, finding some way to set it apart um, so that you could describe it as a different experience, you know, very crisply to people. Like, oh, you want this one because of X, uh, while this one is great because of Y. And that was that was very, very simple with island and desert. Mm-hmm. You know, island is sort of like a gateway game, get people in, um, no experience required, and desert is, is a little crunchier. Uh, so this one, that was, that was what led to a lot of the false starts, and just trying to make sure it was something I could really get behind. Well, yeah, and island and desert are
1: fabulously different. I mean, not just the island sinking and the sand piling, but the equipment cards, the... Yeah, the, 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 I mean, all the crunchy bits, like you're saying. The uh, the water, the like caves, the tunnel systems, and the sunlight, <laughs> and everything. I mean, it's, it's great.
2: Yeah, so what else can I tell you about it? Um, uh, I, I, yeah, I can tell you a little bit about it. Right. I mean, uh, so in Forbidden Island, uh, the, the deal is the, the tiles in the game are disappearing as you play. That's a big thing. And in desert, they're shifting around, and the sand is building up, so you got shifting tiles. So we want to do something different with the tiles. So this is a... a a bit of an exploration game you're building the tiles as as you're exploring oh cool uh, something yeah. sounds exciting anyway <laughs> so you'll be doing uh, different things there and then so will you be adding to the board similar to yeah, like the, a yeah the, the board will kind of Carcassonne style okay. Yeah, cool yeah, but you'll be I mean unlike Carcassonne you'll have your palm kind of wandering around and uh, I think that's a all I can like talk about it. It's that that, that we'll is be, to we'll be looking out more information more excited, as the time so. goes by. Yeah. <laughs> all right, eventually. so
0: building out the board, and you're obviously searching for something. And, um, are you are in the sky? <laughs> well, there you go. Here you go. You heard it here first, folks. <laughs> yeah, <those. right> <laughs> you will um,
1: be in the sky. So would you mind talking a bit about false starts? Because we've, I mean, as I'm sure all designers have, we've had our share of that. Uh, what's been your, I mean, I guess with the recent ones or other ones in the past, you know, kind of dealing with the demoralization and just moving on, picking yourself up.
2: Yeah, I mean, you hit this sort of point where you're like, is it good enough? And uh, it just kind of comes from my gut. You know, they're really excited about it because I have to be excited about it. I have to want to wanna pitch it and want to play it because I'm going to be playing it, you know, well over 100 times and be with it for, you know, a year or longer. And then there's the the game has been published and, you know, you want to support it. Uh, people ask all sorts of questions on the Geek, and you want to be able to be there for them if they get stuck. So the things have a lifespan to them, um, and it's, it's a longer lifespan than you might think. You know? And isn't it funny how sometimes you
0: reach situations where you don't even know the answer to the question? <laughs> and especially if you've been away from the game long enough and you're on to the next project, you're like,
2: wait a minute, the island sinks? What? Oh, <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, yeah. I mean, what's great about uh, Geek is that a lot of the people have played it more than, I have and actually know the rulebook better than I do because uh, I'll get questions and I'll have to go look it up sometimes uh, just absolutely because you know I got over a dozen games now and I have to go make sure because I don't want to I don't want to say the wrong thing if I contradict the rulebook god help me that, that's the worst kind of thing ever yeah, especially when it's in print and you are the yeah, designer yeah yeah that's horrible I, like that Leacock
1: want... said that you're playing it wrong
2: <laughs> yeah yeah that's horrible so um, I don't want to splinter the player community like oh these people play this way and these people play that way right. I hate that as a player so oh um, yeah, man it's like that. the great
0: schism like
2: some, <laughs> yeah. some some view the, the Grand Leacock
0: as the master of the game. <laughs> well, and part of it as a designer, too, is that you've played through different iterations of the game. Yeah. So you don't even know what rules in the book sometimes. Yeah, so yeah. you definitely have to look it up. You know, anytime we get a question on the Geek, same thing. I'm yeah. like, I'm not home. Do you have a rule book near you? Like,
2: <laughs> you know, what was our intention there? What did we settle in on? Like, I don't yeah. know. So getting back to the Geek, I mean, a lot of people will, will respond correctly and will respond um, quickly. Yeah. And so I'm generally there in case, you know, there's some sort of unresolvable problem where, you know, I haven't ruled on something. Or just to say, Bob's right. Well, yeah. That's right. yeah. <laughs> and move Both on. them and say, yeah, exactly. Right.
0: Yeah, now that is interesting. So as a designer, and obviously your games are very popular, so you have a lot of people that have played them mm-hmm. and a lot of people responding. What is your thought on responding to people on the Geek as far mm-hmm. as not necessarily criticisms, but more rules questions, things like mm-hmm. that? Do you think it's better to let the player base somewhat police that for a little bit and then like if nobody comes up with an answer within a day or two then you respond or do you think it's a designer's responsibility to kind of get on there right away and you know as best they can answer those questions yeah i mean
2: for me it's just a question of bandwidth i mean um i i just can't reply to every question and i can't read every session log i do scan just about everything that i've subscribed to and i subscribe to all my games right so i mean it'll go by my eyes if only for a few seconds and generally speaking, the community is really good at at answering the questions. So I typically try to get involved only if people are like, "Hey, you know, it's a he said she said. They just yeah. can't work it out, and then I'll come in there um, and, and respond to it." And unfortunately, uh, I mean that's a good motivator for quality too, right? The the more you can. <laughs>
0: The more the you can stress clearer. test
2: the rules and get them clear up front, the less kind of uh, those questions you've got. Um, but inevitably, especially in legacy games, there are things that you know that are unclear, or you know something's packaged wrong, or you make a mistake. I mean, you know, people are human; you're going to make mistakes. You're, gonna make a mistake. you're gonna open the wrong thing, the wrong word. Yeah. It's wonderful for people. You know, I just love the fact that um, people be like, "I can't find this card," or "I ripped it up accidentally." Does anybody have the contents of this card? And people are there for them. And that, that's great because I, I don't have the bandwidth to answer all of those. And right. People. Yeah, so we've, we brought
1: up uh, Pandemic Legacy a few times. I'm just curious on your thoughts of the sort of recent trend, I'd say. Of course, there are older kind of disposable games like Sherlock Holmes, Consulting Detective, and those kind of things. But what do you think of, like, these escape-the-room games or uh, games that you might only play once? Or like Pandemic Legacy, you get maybe uh, 12 plays or 16 plays out of it. Uh, mm-hmm. it. I mean, clearly you've designed some, so I imagine you're a fan,
2: but... Uh, yeah, what Well, I mean, I'm not necessarily a, a fan of, like, having to throw away a game or recycle <laughs> it, but <laughs> well, uh, um, I, I think there, I mean, there's a trade out there, I mean, because uh, it heightens the tension, mm-hmm. there's no going back, and that creates this visceral emotional experience that i watch watched firsthand, it's really powerful. And then you can do the calculus and say, well, I played that for 20 hours, and it was spent so much, and I've never heard anybody complain after they finished the campaign that, you know, it wasn't a value. I mean, because most folks don't play it, a game five times, right? They'd, sure. A lot of games sit in the shrink. So um, we ask a lot of people to, you know, if you're going to finish the campaign, it's like 16, 18 games. That's a, that's a pretty big ask. Yeah, And absolutely. if someone finishes yeah, especially it. Especially these days, as we said, yeah, how many games get played twice They're not once? complaining that they, they can't play it again, usually. I mean, if they do, then they, they'll build a reset kit or what have you. But um, we've deliberately not pursued that because then we can really go for it. We can say, yeah. well, how can we take this to the limit? That's just sort of the sandbox that we've set for ourselves.
0: Yeah, I mean, the, the reset kit for Pandemic Legacy would be
2: a new Pandemic Legacy. <laughs> well, that's oh, what it no, is. You know, people are very creative, you know, and, you know, get, I, get the other color. <laughs> <laughs> if you want to laminate your stuff, go for it. You know, I mean, I have yeah. no problem with that. You know, if you want to do that, uh, it's a lot of labor, but if you've got more time than money, then, you know, knock yourself out. Yeah,
1: absolutely. And I get, um, you know, we've, we've reviewed a lot of these sort of escape the room games just to, to pick on those for a minute. And there is a big difference for me. Some of the games are literally disposable. Like, you've mm-hmm. teared up and cut out and written on pieces of the game, and there's nothing to be done with it. Uh, the reason we like the Unlock series, for example, and deckscape is that at least... Because, like, right now, as you said, like, what's the play, you know, or the hours mm-hmm. to cost ratio? These games are usually an hour long, and they're like $15, 20 $25, and that's not a good ratio um, at least compared to other board games, compared to maybe movie tickets for you and three of your friends. Not yeah. too bad of a comparison. But the nice thing with the ones that you don't have to throw away is that you can pass it on to your friends. Right. You can trade it on to somebody else on The Geek. You can mm-hmm. donate it to an auction. You can do all kinds of stuff with it. So the game carries on. Very different than to a game that's just ripped up and written on
2: um, that only gets one play out of it. That's yeah, so very... yeah. I mean, I've played uh, uh, both the unlock and I played exit. Just oh one yeah, of, just one of each. Um, and uh, yeah, I mean, I enjoyed the exit experience, but it didn't feel like I was like tearing it up. Completely, you know, it was like just a f- enough components that I couldn't reuse it. Yeah, exactly. <laughs> so yeah like that, that's how they That's how It's sort of right, sort right on the edge. I mean, <laughs> I, it was fine for me. I enjoyed it. I thought I got my money's worth, but I, I know what you're talking about.
0: Sure. Yeah, so now right away, the first thing we do is like rip up the rule book for it, like that book, <laughs> so everybody can get their own page or whatever. Because oh, that is one potential problem with games like this mm-hmm. and we can talk about this is in co-ops in general where you have one puzzle that you're working on at a time you know everybody's working on the same puzzle yeah. especially if it's something that's visual mm-hmm. um seventh continent has this as well yeah. every tile you flip over has some visual you know or not everyone but many, a lot many of many of
1: them have hidden numbers that if you mm. don't see them you right. can't progress to like special parts of the island yet. yeah yeah
0: And so part of that is only one person can look at that at a time, though. So you need Mm -hmm. to have stuff for the other people to do. So I guess as just a co-op designer in general, how do you try to integrate everybody in the gameplay experience? Because co-ops are a very much group experience Mm -hmm. at the same time. So have you ever run up to challenges like that? And I guess it it kind of jumps into Alpha Gamer
1: as well. Like, they're different problems, but related problems... Yeah, how do you keep everyone involved? How do you keep everyone's voice and choices meaningful? Sure. Yeah,
2: well, unlike these escape room type things, it's less prop-driven, so you're not scanning for a sure. number. You're, you're all sitting around the table, and there's there's plenty. And it's a distributed computing problem, right? The, the thing is hmm. complex enough that if you're going to play optimally, more minds are going to be better than fewer. And I know this because I've sold a lot of my games, and I, I've determined... That I am better with more people, um, right? Uh, because more people are challenging me on my assumptions, so my win ratio is lower by myself. So, That's great. Um, uh, yeah, I mean, I can talk all about alpha gaming and you know it it being a social problem. But there are also things you can do as a game designer to try to mitigate that somewhat. And one of those things I don't know, like having your own materials that only you can control. You know, we're careful to say, with permission, you may move thereupon. You know, right. you watch people just not even <laughs> have those basic. You're going you know, here. Decency. Yeah, you're, you're going here, going oh, here and okay, you're going to put out this fire. <laughs> your character's going to die here, but oh, hey, it's okay. The one thing I can't stand is when people are referred to in the third person when they're at the table. <laughs> <laughs> you know, I'm like, come on, she's Johnny. Right there. You do Johnny's doing yeah, this. Yeah. <laughs> right. Oh God. Yeah. Um, And it
1: is interesting because I know, you know, Peter and I game a lot together and we really don't have this problem. And so I I understand the concern, especially with games like where your hand is face up, you know, Mm -hmm. and and theoretically there's more possibility for alpha gaming. And yeah, I I personally find it, I, I totally think you should design at least something in there, like some kind of information or choice or whatever, or complexity that makes alpha gaming not an issue. But at the same time... I see this on The Geek a lot. People are like, is there something that makes Alpha Gamer impossible? Then I'm not playing it. And I'm like, what? Every co-op game, like even if you don't even if you have a hand, I might be like, hey, if you have a green card, play it here. You know, like it doesn't matter. Yeah. No matter what you do, somebody could be an alpha gamer yeah. if that's their personality, if that's how the group is working, right. like the dynamic
2: there. So I think it's very similar to playing a game with uh, mismatched skill levels. Yeah. Like if you're if you a grandmaster playing against a you know a less experienced chess player, it's not gonna be a good game because there's gonna be such a discrepancy in skill. And it's unfair to ask people sitting around the table with different levels of expertise to, to have the same level of enjoyment as uh, a group of people who are all relatively around the same skill level and can all contribute as equals. That's not to say that you should be rude. Uh, right. but I'm saying that it, it's, a, it's a lot to ask of a game to say that everybody's going to have exactly the same fun, you know, when you're, when you're playing it.
1: And it, if they games. are, it's probably a very simplistic game, right?
2: <laughs> yeah, or it's, it's just not a purely cooperative game oh, where sure. you're, you're all contributing ideas freely. Yeah. right? So. You can do it though. I mean, I know people who have played season one multiple times with new groups and it's like watching, you know, a second series of a TV show with your friends. You're not going to say, guess what happens next? And, right. and you tell them, you know, Hopefully. they're going to hate you, <laughs> you know? Um, so uh, but I was going to get back to uh, staying involved in the game and uh, some things that I put in the pandemic early on, as I saw this, you know, I want people to be involved and it's not their turn. Just, just the fact that you have an event card that you can play at any time. Mm-hmm. If you have one of those, you're responsible for knowing when the right time to play it is. So if it's not your turn, you have to pay attention. If nothing else, then to be paying attention to the loop, should I play that card now? Should I play that card now? And so that's one of the reasons why those things are so flexible, It's just to keep people with those cards involved all the time. Yeah, and and, actually,
1: now that you mention it, I see that in mean, a lot of your designs because Island has the sandbags, especially the helicopter, since you might yeah. move somebody else on their turn to Is make it, their actions so much more yeah. efficient. So yeah, no, Is a further
2: refinement with those in that um, it's in a, like an event card, but you own it, so only you can play it, and right. it affects you personally, Right. are transferable. So you're like, okay, I can give this to you. It's a, it's this, this token that you can move around
1: Yeah, so that, that that's different. a great design choice there. I, I never thought about it that specifically, but yeah, really nice. Cool, well,
0: we've kind of covered the gambit. Actually... Before we close out here, I do want to talk about, you are talking about alpha player. What I've seen sometimes, too, and you talked about the different skill levels, is somebody who's new to a game sometimes shut down. So I Mm -hmm. see that more than I I see an alpha player when I've played in groups. So what do you do for that person, right? What do you do for the person that's like, I don't know, what do you think I should do? You know what I mean? You get that, like, I don't know what to do. You've played this before, you know. Mm -hmm. I, I mean, is there anything we as designers can do, any tools we can give that new player to make them have a little bit more agency themselves,
2: like yeah, no. that's, a, that's a good question. I don't have a pad pat answer, or a quick answer for that. I mean, I think as players, we can be trying to be more respe- respectful and say, well, what, you know, here's here's some options, you know, and, and then defer to them to make the, the choice. I mean, as a as an experienced player, you might point out several intelligent options, but then you know, leave it to the the current player, the new player's intuition as to which one they might want to choose.
1: What what I do like a lot that some games have done. Uh, I don't know why I'm bringing up Spirit Island a few times, but Spirit Island did it. um, And also, like, a lot of, like, war games and things will do this. Not cooperative, per se, but uh, they'll have, like, suggested unit lists. Or in Spirit Island, they have uh, a set of, like, the progression. So you don't even have to draw powers. Just get these powers. They're Mm. marked with the symbol. And this is how you will progress in your first game. So the nice thing about it is that you can play with very experienced players and just have that card, have those cards ready... And it takes out the most challenging, not like the most interesting, like you, st- you still get to do the very interesting, you know, tactical game management stuff. But it takes out one of the most kind of complex, like icon-driven stuff from the game so that you can jump right in. And the experienced players don't even have to spend time being like, that's the one you want. Oh, right. yeah. Um, yeah. So, yeah, I think something along those lines... Yeah. Uh, yeah, I, I could, either your friends uh, or the designer giving you, like, suggested choices, suggested starting roles, whatever you want right, to Right, that's
2: what I was going to say. You could, you could potentially design roles that are a little bit more straightforward. Sure. Uh, but still still fun to play.
1: Like, I think the first time I played Pandemic, I probably had the medic, and that was super simple and super straightforward. Yeah. And I felt awesome. I was just going around curing everything.
2: Probably <laughs> better than, say, the contingency expert. Exactly. Sure. <laughs> or, oh, oh, my gosh, the worst. <laughs> kind of who, who's the walk. person who
1: can move other people? The, uh... the Dispatcher. Yeah, like. Uh, With getting... their permission. Yeah. Yeah. <laughs> (laughs) But they would give the dispatcher to a new player and be like, hey, so we're going to tell you what to do with your action. So I want to be over here. Can you get me there? Right.
0: right. (laughs) Well, and it's funny because we did something with Salvation Road when we designed it. We had one character. We wanted somebody who could give actions to another player, Mm -hmm. but we gave them the ability to move to their location and then let them have an action. So they select their own action. Mm -hmm. So it's like, hey, I'm moving here go ahead and take an action. And now that person's involved again when it's not their turn. So I Mm -hmm. think there are things you can do with that as well where even if you have a role, that would be typically the... I'm going to give all my actions to everybody else, and you can't, mm-hmm. you know, I'm not going to do anything on my turn. It, get, you know, at least gives people, you know, a benefit out of it and something yeah, you it's can do. Yeah,
2: interesting idea, I mean, because it, uh, at the front of mine, it, typically have a section that it's pretty short, but it says, you know, here's the difficulty level you, you probably want to set for the group. But I don't, I don't really have anything that says, hey, are you a new player? Or if you have new players in your group, um, you know, maybe have them play this role or that role.
0: Yeah, it's something it's interesting anyway. And I know some games do it and they have like complexity levels against the bosses they're fighting, complexity mm. levels of like Sentinels of the Multiverse is the one I think of. Like yeah, yeah. this character is really easy to use. This one's not so straightforward. Like yeah. expect a harder game because you're not gonna know what you're doing. Mm-hmm. And uh Well, there you go,
1: Matt. Tell Game Right for Forbidden Sky.
0: (laughs) Here are the roles that are suggested for new players. (laughs) If you see
1: it in the game, you'll know where it
0: came
1: from. Hey, we'll be slightly
2: minorly famous, kind of.
0: (laughs) You know, no one's going to hear this, so it's fine. (laughs) There's no proof anywhere.
1: All right. Well, uh, Matt, it has been such a pleasure to have you on the podcast. And uh, thanks so much for taking time out of Unpub. I know it's a, a busy weekend for you. Uh, being uh, You're, you're the, the the keynote, right? Like the, the guest of guest honor. Guest of honor, I think. Yeah, yeah. whatever they call it. <laughs> All of the above. Yeah, that's right. So,
0: yeah, th- thank you so much. It's yeah, been, thanks for been having great. me. It's fun. All right, great. Thanks for your time, Matt. Thanks for joining us on another episode of Co-op Cast. We'll be back in two weeks to review another cooperative board game. Until then, please review us on iTunes. And while you're there, check out Mindless Faith. They provide our bumper music. Also, if you like co-op games and why else would you be here, check out coopboardgames.com. They have some great cooperative board game material. If you want to contact us, feel free to follow us on Twitter, at MVP Board Games, or email us at mvpboardgames at gmail.com. Shifting point, where you are... Uh...
2: You want to re-edit Should have lock locked the door. Lock the
0: door. <laughs> yeah, and it's interesting to me, though. Um, I totally lost it. wasn't that interesting to me, apparently. <laughs> it would have been, man. We just never got to hear it. So
1: yeah.
0: I had it like maybe halfway it through. Most,
2: maybe it was the most interesting thing you were going to it see was. The, it was out. the most interesting
0: part of this whole discussion, and I totally lost it. Bye. And in the immortal words of Bill and Ted,